0: And thank you for listening to Policing Matters, the Police One podcast with Doug Wyland. Hi, I'm Jim Dudley. Jim, um, I think probably the most important thing that we've seen in the news in the last couple of weeks um, is not is not uh, an event that took place here in the United States. It's the uh, multiple attacks uh, in in Paris, France, um, and of course there was one very recently now in, in Mali. It was a single location, but um, the Mumbai style multiple location mobile. Armed men, small arms, and small, small, if you will, explosive devices. Um, how are we preparing in the United States for when that happens here?
1: Yeah, that's a good point, uh, Doug. Just uh, November of uh, 2015, we had the uh, we saw the attacks in Paris, and they were really reminiscent of the uh, Mumbai attacks from 2008, when you had small groups of armed uh, extremists, um, really uh, seeking to do nothing other but um, contribute to the mass casualty count for, to gain attention for their, their cause, if you will. And We saw it um, happen in Paris, and I think a lot of us hearkened back to just after 2001, when we thought about uh, attacks on US soil, what will we do? And before mumbai i think we were thinking about uh, planes into buildings Uh, but now it's on a personal level and we saw the response we've heard the criticism in paris and i think things would run a little bit differently in the united states i think uh, i know for sure after the mumbai attacks you had um, police from mumbai come to the u.s and go to several sites and talk about what happened and how they were unprepared and and we developed some really good strategies uh, nationally. I know New York really um, stepped up their response uh, in training. So did Boston, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco. And um, I think um, that we would have a pretty good response for any type of attack here in the United States. You know, it,
0: it, it goes to also, it goes to training and equipment. Um, you know, having uh, the right training with the right gear, you you I think need to really have. If your agency doesn't have a patrol rifle program, you need to really start really thinking your your strategy there. And and obviously you need to that you know calls into the question. You have to have good training on those guns. You have to have the uh, proper equipment also to protect yourself. I think ballistic helmets and trunks is uh, is a pretty good idea. But you know it's a lot of stuff to buy and a lot of stuff to train. It's I think going to take us a while for patrol to get to. Um, you know, the the type of capabilities that, you know, look, I think what happened in France, they were waiting for SWAT Um, And it it, or at least it appeared that way from what? 5,000 miles away watching it on television. It was 40-something minutes before um, You know, they breached the building to try and stop that killing
1: Right. And, you know, unfortunately in the United States, we've had too many learning moments where we've seen armed Um, gunmen with uh, superior firepower uh, automatic weapons kevlar suits helmets and things like that and the um, los angeles uh, the west uh, hollywood bank shootout was a great example of that and i I hand it to lapd for their ingenuity in getting helicopters in the air going to sporting goods stores appropriating uh, long rifles and ammunition and and um, eventually uh, neutralizing the, mm-hmm. the threat. But uh, I think that woke up a lot of agencies around mm-hmm. the country. And since then, as, as you've said, uh, the patrol rifle is, is common now when it was really um, the outlier in years before. Mm-hmm. But I think we're, we're much better prepared in, in San Francisco and a lot of other major agencies. I know Uh, The tactic is to move to the threat as soon as you get a couple of officers and you don't have to wait for the SWAT team or specially trained uh, outfitted uh, units. So I think that's happening. I think in in the United States, you have a lot of uh, off duty um, or retired law enforcement officers like myself. Mm -hmm. who. Still carry concealed weapons um, a lot of the time, and would be an asset to local law enforcement
0: for these kinds of attacks. Yeah, and you know, and that brings up an interesting thing. We'll be talking again a little bit later about you know the the, the issues related to to off duty carry, the issues related to off duty response when you know that the coppers are definitely en route. Um, but you know, I also want to talk about not just the the response here, but also prevention because you know the 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 the. Generally, the groups that are conducting these attacks now, they're, they're not of Irish descent. This is not the Irish Republican Army. Um, they're radicalized in areas of their, um, where they're living, the cities in Europe or, or, or elsewhere, um, that are per- permissive of uh, keeping the cops out. There's cops no-go zones there in Brussels and France and I think in, in England as well. Um, they're, they're, they're not here yet. I don't know that that would ever happen here. Um, But I I do think that we have to be conscious of the fact that, you know, there are people who are self radicalizing on the internet here in the United States, whether it's in their mom's basement or if it's in in prison, which is most common. Um, You know, we have to have the the wherewithal to keep pressing that see something, say something with our citizens and keep pressing. I've said for years now that American cops are the front lines of counterterrorism. The guys doing stuff overseas, that's great, that's fantastic and it's necessary. But in order to prevent, truly prevent uh, an an attack here, we have 100 plus JTTFs, Joint Terrorism Task Force Offices. We have, you know, there aren't that many FBI guys and they have seven areas of focus from organized crime to, you know, to terrorism, cyber and everything else. So they have a narrow band of guys focused on terrorism (laughs) prevention. Whereas American cops are out there on the street and they have the ability to kind of sniff stuff out. Right, right. Um, I, a number of years ago, I wrote an article called from a variety of different sources um, on the eight pre-attack indicators. Uh, and I'll, I'll go over them really quickly right now. There is the financing activity. And oftentimes you will find um, at, you know, where there's criminal activity, uh, there is an, a reason behind it. And it may be uh, that they're trying to raise funds to buy arms, raise funds to send f- uh, funds overseas to guys who are training. Um, there's the surveillance. This one's oftentimes uh, a really good opportunity for citizens to report. There's a strange dude with a camera taking a picture of, of, of you know, three or four times a day um, of, of, a, of a potential target. And you have to think about the context, what the target is. Um, active elicitation. This is an interesting one where these groups will sometimes um, send a poll uh, asking about security measures, send a poll asking about hours of operation, send a poll asking about how many people are on site. Um, Conducting this as if it was a service to the business or to the to to the church, whoever they're trying to target. Um, then there's um, the probing security, you know, testing the security. Uh, sure. This is where you know um, police officers can be participants in in some of this prevention, where you can red team a soft target and tell them where their where their vulnerabilities are. Um, but that's what those that's what those probing security people are trying to do. Um, acquiring supplies again. Uh, this this begins to get to a place where you know. Are we looking at someone who's acquiring too many chemicals that uh, you know can be, indi- you know, uh, precursors for improvised weapons? Um, the the next one is, is suspicious persons, people who just look out of place in a in a spot. Uh, I always use the example of you know in a room full of eighteen and nineteen year old chemistry students, you got a fifty four year old guy who just looks completely out of place. Uh, what's he doing there? And mm-hmm. you know, ask him. What, what's what's your deal? Um, the dry runs is this is when everything's coming together. It's the final step before um, you know deploying assets, and that you can it can be seen uh, what's you know wh- what they're doing. Uh, you just have to pay attention and watch for it. Uh, and then of course it's deploying assets, and that's when you know you see some, you know these are the armed guys going into the building, and that's it's it is too late for the first shots to be prevented. But right. that's when you get into the response portion of the right,
1: program. Right, right. No, no, and and I agree with everything you said. Um, As a nation, I think we dealt with it after the 9-11 attacks by increasing our situational awareness, looking at what's going on in the world. We're not, you know, we're, well, we are, and we're not an island alone in the US, but um, situational awareness is key as to knowing what's going on politically. Uh, throughout the United States. I mean, right now we have ISIS threats on specific yep. states in the US, California being one of them. So I'm sure law enforcement agencies are girding and, and getting ready for, the, for any possible attacks, reviewing infrastructure reports, uh, identifying critical infrastructure, uh, dealing with um, other federal agencies, interagency, uh, multidisciplinary teams. Uh, I know in San Francisco and a lot of other cities, uh, when federal grants came out, we prepared by doing exercises with multidisciplinary teams, Mm -hmm. police, fire, public works, public health, uh, sheriffs, uh, our federal partners with the FBI. And uh, we we looked at how we would respond to uh, a scenario. Mm -hmm. And did we plan well enough? Did we have the resources available to deal with it? And then what were the mitigation um, steps that we took towards those towards those events? Mm-hmm. And for a lot of situations, we found that we were quite prepared. For other situations, we found that we were um, really sorely in need of better training, better response, and better cooperation with these other uh, agencies and the teams. So. Uh, idea and protect critical infrastructure. Uh, the 1033 program that you and I have talked about mm-hmm. before, I wrote an article that was in police one, uh, that talked about the value of the 1033 program, which is a program that allows agencies to get uh, additional or supplemental surplus equipment from the government. Uh, a lot has been said about tanks, there's <laughs> not a single tank that I've ever heard of given to a, a local agency, there are armored rescue vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, high-powered uh, weapons, sniper rifles uh, lasers um, infrared things like that uh, that small departments can't uh, afford even in places like uh, San Francisco and the Bay Area we've we've increased our marine units and supplemented our marine units mm-hmm. with equipment received from the 1033 program mm-hmm. so so that's extremely valuable and then uh, TLO training terrorism, Terrorism liaison officers mm-hmm. training is huge. Uh, we have, as you talked about, uh, the JTTF. Uh, terror- TLOs are a component of that. And there's monthly training, monthly meetings. They talk about getting information to officers who go on to scenes who see a proliferation of gunpowder, BBs, even gallon jugs of urine. Why would anybody want to keep that? Well. It could be converted into uric acid, which could be used in in make you know makeshift bombs, if mm-hmm. you will. So all that's good in the prevention stage. Again, once you say that once that first shot's fired, once that first you know individual crawls up a beach with a with a gun, then we get into that mitigation and response phase. And um, I think we're we're pretty well trained here in the Bay Area for something like that. Yeah.
0: Well, I think that the, the main takeaway is that, you know, we look overseas and, and hopefully we learn from some of the things that uh, are happening over there. Uh, I think you and I can agree that it, it's really a matter of time before something like this eventually jumps off someplace in the United States. We know from their statements that they want to do it. Um, they obviously have the capability to sure. to, to remain hidden, um, you know, as they did in, in Paris um, right up until the time when they, they started to attack. So. We, you know, on our end in the law enforcement world, you know, need to keep keep our vigilance, keep working with our citizens and keep, um, you know, trying to do everything we can to to prevent. And then, you know, when that happens to respond in an appropriate and and, uh, uh, final, (laughs) if you will, matter fast and final. Sure. Yeah. Um, Well, we're up on it. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back in a couple of minutes and uh, have another conversation. clicking and thank you for listening we're back with the police and matters podcast police one's podcast with leaders and experts i'm doug wiley editor-in-chief of police one
1: hi i'm jim dudley retired deputy chief from san francisco pd currently a lecturer in criminal justice studies at san francisco state university
0: jim um there has been a number of um news articles of late uh, indicating that this trend of of uh, citizens in particular pressuring uh, police agencies to lower their standards and in some cases it's elected officials in some cases even within the agencies themselves lowering hiring standards I've seen headlines in the last year or two out of Asheville North Carolina Phoenix Arizona New Orleans Louisiana um, you know we were talking about the fact we were going to be talking about this this issue and I actually I found an article in The Wall Street Journal from May 2015 and it had a couple of interesting statistics in it uh it's uh it says from a bureau of justice statistics 12 percent of police officers in the united states are african-american and according to the united states census bureau 13.2 percent of americans are Uh, african-americans now i think that the the numbers there get skewed there are certainly uh, agencies that are um, predominantly all white male Certainly, and there are issues there we have to address. But from a pure, from a global perspective, if you look at the United States as a whole, those numbers kind of closely match.
1: No, I, I agree. I, I, I think I understand uh, the issue. As far as race goes, I certainly understand um, when you have a Ferguson and you have the department grossly underrepresented in African-American when the city has a high percentage. So um, in that case, you wonder what contributes to a situation like that. Um, I think across the country, uh, it might be attitudes, it might be politics, it might be our educational system that all contribute to the final numbers. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I mean, disturbing to me was right here in, in Oakland, California, when one of the city councilwomen uh, asked that we lower scores uh, just for um, a male minority population. And, um, you know, luckily there was a, a, a backlash that mm-hmm. said, wait a minute, I mean, you belittle the people who take the test, much much less water down the, the effectiveness of testing. And I think it's important to keep high standards for a couple of reasons. and if you look into the ethics of policing and uh, if you look in just the sheer numbers of, of uh, people who tend to have problems later down the road, um, uh, corruption and stealing and lying, getting uh, uh, caught up um, in, in scandals that are so prevalent in the media today that Uh, A lot of those could be predicted by recruitment standards, um, how they fare on a background, how they fare on a polygraph or a psychological component of the testing. And I think that's why it's important to keep high standards. But in class, we've talked about it. And I've I've asked the class, you know, 50-year standards of hiring practices, do we need to make some sort of adjustment for today as opposed to 50 years ago? Uh, marijuana was supposed to be the evil weed. It's still a schedule one drug recognized by um, the federal uh, Department of Public Health. And uh, it's not going away anytime soon, but you have uh, a high number of states, no pun intended, a large number of states that have uh, decriminalized if not out-and-out uh, legalized marijuana use. So. If you grow up in one of these states, you get a marijuana card or it's legal to smoke and then you decide you want to get into policing, but you can't mm-hmm. because of your um, your Past abuse, history. Or, your history yeah. or use of marijuana. So uh, I think sometimes when we look at who passes the backgrounds, we may tend to get people who don't have a lot of exposure to life mm-hmm. that, uh, anybody who's been involved in a fight recently, generally disqualified. Anyone who's had financial problems, generally disqualified. Uh, people who've had problems with other coworkers, things like that, that in, in today's society, I don't think that those are so out of the norm, but as far as police testing, they are. So in some ways, I guess I guess to summarize, in some ways, I think we do need to take a look at police hiring standards at the tests and maybe modify them to uh, the general population.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I was at an IACP a couple of years ago and we were talking about, uh, this was a sidebar conversation, me and about five, six chiefs talking about um, what is Colorado going to do? This is right after Colorado. What is Colorado going to do to find cops in 10 years, 15 or years? Or Washington State. Washington State now. Alaska, I think, uh, is in the process of legalizing. It's just, you know, on and on and on down the line. And the trend is towards that and not, a, a, you know, kind of reverse of it. Right. So there has to be an accommodation somehow in order to, you know, yeah, you, you have to make sure that you look at, you know, the, the whole, you know, the, the totality of the candidate, if you will. Right. And if you have upside here, upside there, upside there, upside there, and they smoke dope, you may need to figure out a way to accommodate for that. Right,
1: and so so to be clear, as far as a background goes, if you can say, I stopped smoking six months ago, I'm not gonna smoke henceforth, right. I believe those people should be eligible um, for law enforcement to mm-hmm. be considered. Uh, I asked the class, what, what sort of jobs or careers um, would you exempt from uh, being able to smoke marijuana. And we talk about mass transportation. If you're driving a bus, an airplane, if you're running a elderly care center or a daycare center, uh, if you're a first responder, police, fire, uh, paramedic, doctors, uh, you don't want those people um, smoking marijuana. So I, I just want to be clear that um, you can have a background of it, but if you can show you've made a decision, you're clear of it, I don't see them as, I don't see a reason to disqualify them.
0: Yeah, you know, um, Jim, just uh, recently I wrote an article for Police One um, related to this very topic. So it's, it's just uh, by coincidence uh, you and I were talking about this on this day. Um, I, I interviewed uh, your ex-boss, um, Chief Greg Sir of San Francisco Police Department. Uh, about this very topic and how he has a very long-term vision and strategy for ensuring that the police force—and you know, to be fair, the San Francisco police force is very racially diverse already. You know, right. this is a result of the cons- consent decree that came down, and you know, of course, a couple of years ago in 2011, when you know, about 400 coppers uh, took an early retirement. It was an opportunity to really kind of reinvigorate that program. Right. Um, but you know, he—he he really works well. Um, all of the agency does, all of the officers do, and in fact, even the recruits do, to get with kids, to work with the Police Activities League, the summer jobs program. Um, you know, there's a v- wide variety of things that uh, the agency is doing to cultivate what I call the farm team. You know, you have, you have positive contacts with these kids as opposed to negative contacts with these kids. So it goes to this. Why would someone who has had a negative or multiple negative um, encounters with police wanna become a police officer? That's a really difficult sell, right? right it's right. a much more easy sell—a recruitment sell—to say, "Hey, you know what? We've been we, we've been friends for 12 years while you've been going to school. We got you jobs during the summer. We helped you learn t- judo. We helped we took you fishing. We do, all of these things we've done together, right. and we've gotten to, they've gotten to know the police in, in a way that's substantially positive. Right? And um, I think that you know, I, I state in the article, San Francisco is different in a lot of ways. Um, And uh, Chief Sir put it this way: Um, a lot of people think of police agencies sort of as the USC band, the USC marching band. I mean, regimented and perfect and all of that. Um, He he mentioned that we're more like the Stanford band, you know, where we just (laughs) kind of run around and play instruments and look silly. With a Um, tree, but but yeah, with a tree. Um, But it but it works for Stanford, you know, and it works for here. What we have in that I'm talking about really more citizens than anything else, but. the, the program here in San Francisco with all of the things that every all of these officers are doing with these kids can be taken and plopped into another city and replicated very easily. It takes a little bit of an investment. Um, San Francisco's fortunate in that they have an investment from Mark Benioff to help support some of these programs. Right. You know, there are people probably in many jurisdictions that would that are crying for a more racially diverse, ethnically diverse, or representative force. Sure. Um, there certainly are leaders that can help you figure out a way to fund these kind of a programs, or at least to get it started. And once what Chief Sir said was, once you start, you don't stop. You just keep building on it, keep building on it. And what happens then is you've created um, an opportunity for kids. You've created goodwill for the kids and the kids' families, potentially. Right. And you've created this this kind of churning, churning, churning machine of potential candidates 12 years down the line. Now, this is not an immediate fix for an immediate need. You know, it, right. it, it, it gets to the point that this is a long-term problem. This has been a problem for a long time. It's going to take a little while. It's going to take a decade probably to get to where we really need to go.
1: Right. And you've identified most of the benefits of that strategy, and I applaud Chief Sir for that strategy of identifying the relationships with the community and with the kids especially. We've been running those programs that you cited, the wilderness program where we, I've taken kids myself on that program, backpacking in Yosemite for seven days. Now that takes commitment, not just on behalf of the kids but on the cops themselves because they don't get any paid any extra for that. Um, they're seven days out doing the same things that any other camper's doing on the trail with these kids, often from you know, inner city, uh, tough neighborhoods. Um, the fishing program, Operation Dream that works in public housing, uh, He Chief Sir added two weeks onto the police academy just to get in the time for the new recruits to go out and work in the communities, uh, to go to tutoring centers, to go to boys and girls clubs, to go to public housing areas and uh, shoot baskets and play soccer and, and help coach teams. The benefit is there's there's so much upside. The benefit is huge, not just for the kids Mm -hmm. who now see cops in a different light, because before cops were only coming when something bad happened, right? Mm -hmm. We're we're the 9-11 guys, right? Something happens bad, call 911, these guys show up. So now kids are seeing cops in the context of something good, right? We're going to go backpacking, we're going to go on a snow trip, we're going to go fishing. Uh, we're gonna play sports, they're gonna help tutor us. So those are all positive interactions. Mm-hmm. But, but the, the one part you did not identify was the positive benefit to the cops themselves. Right. And I've seen the attitudes of young police officers change over the time with working with these kids in these different interactions. And it's such a positive. And then the community policing aspect I mean, it, it, just, it just snowballs into this great benefit for the police department, the kids, future recruits, the families, the communities. You create this community efficacy that really builds trust with the police department. Yeah. And that's, that's a side benefit that um, I don't know if that was one of the true intentions of Chief Sir when he thought about building these relationships with kids, but it's certainly an end product.
0: Yeah, I think that you, when you have these types of programs and you have them for a period of time, uh, you, I think personally you can look at some statistics even and see that crime rates go down in certain places. You're addressing fewer issues in certain places. You have, you know, you just have a healthier community.
1: Yeah, it's it's tougher to it's tougher to gauge the effectiveness though because it's hard to prove prove a negative. Right, of course. But I mean, we've seen the epidemiological studies of the negative interactions with police. We've seen and heard from children of incarcerated parents. We've seen the effects of children who suffer abuse in the home, physical, neglect, sexual, and and just how that carries over in their adult lives. We've seen how uh, poor nutrition lends to the end product um, being harmful. So it this is this is counter to those and it's adding something good that may not be as as effectively measured but but i think we do see the end results yeah
0: i think that this this all goes to comes back to the point that what you need to be doing um, long term and really short term is cultivating the level of recruit that you want and that's and not lowering the standard but raising the level of the recruit right making the recruit really m- perfect for you for your agency you know so you but you have to mold that clay that that clay just doesn't come into the out of the kiln as a formed piece of art you have to work with that clay
1: right right yeah it's it's hard to say why um, i think i think we're we're running nationally at about a 20% clip of those all those who apply to be police officers that 20% eventually make it into the police academy and I know just last week a, a, a group of 50 Academy graduates went into the field and on day one you had somebody resign. So you had somebody who went through 32 weeks of a police Academy only to quit on his first day out mm-hmm. into into the field. So it's not, you know, not everyone's cut out for police work. Um, maybe they, they get eliminated through the um, through the process, and maybe they self-select and quit in the academy or or quit in field training. But uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the fix is. I know it's not lowering standards. I know that's not the
0: fix. I think we could both agree there. Uh, well, let's take a quick break, and uh, we'll come back. All right. for listening. You're listening to Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley. Hi, welcome back. I'm Jim Dudley. Jim, we were talking earlier um, about uh, response to active shooter, terrorism, even just uh, criminal interdiction while you are off duty. And uh, the very first day I came on the job at Police One, the very first poll I put on the Police One homepage was, do you carry off duty? And the results are interesting. And I found them to be... Um, excellent in fact. Uh, yes, all of the time, 41%. Yes, most of the time, 34%. Only in a risky area. I don't know why I chose that particular terminology on that day. 14%. But here's the most important number I think in the poll. No, I don't carry off duty. And it was only 11%. And I found that to be excellent. Now, whether or not that remains, you know, certainly it's a small sample size of people who actually were exposed to the Police One Homepage back then. Um, so what we've done is we've created an, another homepage poll, it's up on Police One right now, um, asking effectively, uh, to paraphrase myself, now that times have changed and we're seeing things like Paris and Mali and you know all of these attacks that are happening overseas that certainly could and probably will one day happen here, are you more prone to carry now than in the past? So go to the Police One homepage, check out the poll, um, and, and do vote. Also, it, it, if you have thoughts on off-duty carry, you know, uh, on on the, the the issues that go to it, um, email Jim and, and myself at policing matters at police1.com. That's policing matters one word at police1.com. Jim, you know, what are your thoughts on this? You know, broadly and, and overall of off-duty carry. There's so many issues. Well, I think it's important
1: that. Uh, if, a, if an off-duty or a retired uh, law enforcement officer does carry, that they are qualified, that they maintain their standards, they go to the range and they qualify. And with that said, I think they also have to be very careful in when they decide to use the, the firearm or um, when they, they assist uh, law enforcement officers um, in situations that may call for them. So with that said, um, I know Use of force training talks about uh, when when you would and and not use uh, a firearm in an off-duty situation or a plainclothes situation where uh, responding officers may confuse you for the bad guy, or when it might be safer to just be the best witness possible. Mm-hmm. Assess the situation, uh, take a, a great uh, be a great witness, take good descriptions, and be a great witness when the police show up. But um, as far as, as, as taking action in, a, in an armed encounter, um, there's so many hazards with that. And uh, we've seen um, you know, tragedies as a result from two off-duty officers uh, encountering each other, mm-hmm. uh, blue-on-blue situations, if you will. Um, armed, uniformed officers responding where a armed off-duty or plainclothes officers brandishing a firearm as well. So there's so many hazards. Um, the firearms training talks about situations on uh, when you would act and when you wouldn't. And I have to say that a majority of the cases you wouldn't act uh, unless there's active shooters, people are dying, people are being shot. I right. think. That, that situation dictates itself. You've got to
0: react. Right. And I think that that's really, you know, the crux of what we're talking about. Um, you know, like, I know he's, he's gotten a little bit of a bad reputation of late, but, you know, his heroics are undeniable. Ken Hammond at the Trolley Square Mall in, in Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, he prevented innocents from being killed because the assailant uh, had to turn his attent- attention to the rounds coming at him from, from, from Jim Hammond. Um, the, you know, that when you get the ability to stop the killing of innocents, that's when you're talking about preventing the active shooter, sure. f- fulfilling their, their desired, you know, um, top score there, um, you know, th- there are things that we could do to prevent the blue on blue. There's several we talked about earlier, right. um, off air about, you know, verbalization, you know, have codes that you use, you know, your agency and other agencies know what they are. So when you're, you know, when you're engaging, you know, make that make that code known to the right if, if you're
1: searching a hallway or a stairway and you call out a sign and expect a counter sign if you think it's law enforcement and you don't hear it then you've got to assume it's not a law enforcement officer right.
0: and, and you know and uh, I'm I'm not really interested in making this this podcast about products but there are some products um, on the market that actually can help you identify yourself as a as a law enforcement officer and I think it merits mention um, there's this uh, there's this little of course you're not going to be able to see this you out there in podcast land but look up on the internet the DSM the Don't Shoot Me sash and it's a, just a small little rectangular thing, looks about the size of a smartphone and you rip it open a little velcro strap and from it you pull this, um, this very bright green yellow sash, it goes over your shoulder and it says, it could say a number of things, it could say police, it could say Leosa HR 218, um, but the only people that are gonna, that are sold to these are police officers. He, the, the guy who makes these, vets oh. makes sure that they're cops. Another one, which I think is an interesting thing, it's from a company called Cherry's Apparel, um, which is a company from Aaron Cohen, who interestingly was um, is an American citizen but was in the Israeli special forces, um, and he's invented this thing where the, the, the upper left pocket of the shirt rips out, similar to the back of a jacket, where you'd have underneath that si- that sign that says police on it um and it's, it's small it's not diff- it's not easy to see but it's just one other layer of protection the third one i don't have an example in my hand but chief jeff chudwin of the illinois tactical officers association turned me onto this thing a few years ago at aileta it is a it's an addendum to your badge that sticks on the back either via i think it was rivets or something that you, if you're wearing your badge on your belt you pull it off with it's got a little finger loop and it's a little difficult to describe physically over a, a podcast air here, but you can hold that with your support side hand as you're presenting your firearm, and its it badge becomes very, very, very visible right there at the gun. Or you can wave it to the person, you know, people behind you. You can use your hand to, to indicate, and then, of course, you're doing those verbalizations to prevent that right. uh, other, you know. But again, it's just another layer of protection for yourself. Sure. Now,
1: I've seen um, over the course of my time in in law enforcement, I've seen some pretty bizarre scenes uh, in armed encounters. Um, I think you'd really have to get out some of these devices to law enforcement to let them be aware of it, put out training bulletins, um, get pictures out there of these things and it's 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 not foolproof i mean no, if not. they're available in the market anyone can have them i think it's important to shout out to verbalize as you've said shout out i'm a cop i'm a police officer uh raise the weapon uh if obey all commands uh, if the law enforcement officer in uniform says put your weapon down raise your hands turn around back up
0: I'm doing all of it. Well, yeah, the uniform obviously takes, you know, is, is at the top of the food chain in that particular uh, scenario. You absolutely have to obey the commands of the, of the arriving officers because they're on duty and you're not. Right. Um, you know, and if you're a retired officer, you know, right, just down the gun, get on the ground as, as commanded, and, and you will more likely than not remain safe. Um, I think that it's just, you know, we look at a lot of these issues and it's just, you have to look at the totality of it. You have to look at the wholeness of it. You have to have several different approaches. I've written about the DSM on Police One. I will be writing about the Cherries Apparel, just so that there's a picture out there on Police One or el- other websites. I don't really care where you get your information, but I, w- I want all of the police officers out there on the street that are either retired or not to have as much information as they can possibly have to have that level of safety. If you choose to carry off duty, you know, have these sets of, uh, you know, rules and understanding, rules of engagement and understanding, and know that there are some things out there to help you. Sure. You know, um, well, we're, we're up against it one more time, Jim. We can talk all day.
1: We can. And I, I'd like to take, if I can, I'd like to take a minute just to acknowledge our, our great theme uh, music, our intro and exit music is, uh, it was devised just for uh, policing matters, and it uh, was made up by a friend and musician, Mike Vargo. And you can hear the entirety of the of the theme song at uh, www.soundcloud.com backslash MFVargo, V-A-R-G-O. And uh, you can hear the tune, Mystery Crime, or any of uh, Mike's uh, music there. So thanks, uh, thanks again, Mike, for the
0: great theme song. And thank you, Jim, for another great series of conversations for Policing Matters podcast.
1: Yeah, and it's getting wet out there and dark early, so be careful out there on the road. And yeah. Have a safe holiday. Sun goes down earlier now.
0: Stay safe out there, guys.